Good morning, Veritas. I think you guys were pretty excited to sing that Christmas song. I, even before we started singing it, I heard this like, yes, God, yeah. And uh, I was telling them earlier, I was thrilled because actually our central text, our key text is going to be Luke chapter 1, like a nativity kind of Christmas text. And uh, we hadn't coordinated that before, but it, it just is perfect the way God lines all that stuff up. So yeah, if you have your Bible, you can actually make your way to Luke 1. That's, that's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time. But before we dive into our teaching and our series on the Apostles' Creed, I do want to say Happy Mother's Day to many of you. And uh, I just especially want to rob this opportunity to say Happy Mother's Day to my mom, who always watches my message. She's 95. She's not here. Sorry, when I pointed, I was at the camera. Um, I wish she was here, but anyway, 95 years old and is still... Such a delight. Everybody in my hometown, when I go back and, oh, you're Colleen's son. We love her so much. I'm like, I know, I know. The whole town loves my mom. I love my mom. And she has been an incredible, incredible mother um, for me and my, the, the rest of us five. So love her and for all of you who are mothers or have somebody to thank for being their mom. Don't, don't let this day pass without letting them know how grateful you are for them. Uh, also, real quick, more on just kind of a business side of things. There's a vision meeting for members and those that would just like to pop in uh, during each of these services. So in other words, after this service, if you want to jump into that, the same material is going to be covered in the equipping room. So, you know, don't forget that if you want to jump over there. But, hey, we're in week three of our series on the Apostles' Creed. I'm going to make my way to uh, Luke chapter one. That's where we're going to be. But before we even talk about... Uh, read the creed, and um, also look at Luke 1. I just want to remind us of how important these truths are that we're going to be looking at this morning. When we repeat the words of the Apostles' Creed, um, it has to be more than just a religious exercise. It has to be more than just parroting back words that have been handed down through churches or traditions or whatever. It's, it's got to be more than just that, that kind of exercise, nor, nor uh, can it be reduced to just Christianity shorthand. It's not just a reductionistic way to, to sum up what we believe. There's a lot of weight in what we're confessing to be true when we repeat back the words of the Apostles' Creed. Um, I was thinking about it this week in terms of a line in the sand. Again, we, you've heard us use that phrase, but I actually looked up, wait, where did that even come from? What does that mean? And there's actually two ways that drawing a line in the sand actually pertains to what we're doing with the Apostles' Creed. So one way that we use that phrase, hey, I'm drawing a line in the sand, is uh, something like, hey, we're not moving. We're not budging from this. There's a line in the sand and look, I'll compromise on some things. I'll, I'll give way on some matters in life, maybe even some important things. But when it comes to this stuff, I'm immovable. I'm, I'm not budging off of what I believe to be true. So we're drawing a line in the sand with the Apostles' Creed saying, I believe this stuff. And there's a lot of things you, you and I can disagree with and agree to disagree, whatever. On this stuff, nope, I, I am immovable. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about when Martin Luther uh, sought to make change within the Roman Catholic Church, um, seeing that they were teaching some things that weren't in line with, with the scriptures at that point. And, and uh, they lined up all of his books that were trying to say, no, 
let, let's get back to the truth of the scriptures. And they lined up all of his books and, and, and brochures and pamphlets that he had created to make this statement. And they said, recant this stuff, recant this stuff, right? And he stood there, and maybe some of you remember his line where he just said, here I stand, I can do no other, so help me God. <laughs> like, I can't, re- recant, I can't take back what I believe to be true, and I believe this to be true. So I can't, I can't budge from this point. So when we say we're drawing a line in the sand, it's like that. We're just kind of planting our feet and we're saying, no, I can't do that. Another way that we use that idea of, of crossing a line uh, is, is similar, but it's got a little bit different imagery to it. It's actually saying, oh, there's a line in the sand, and I know that when I cross that line, I'm signing on for something for which there's no turning back. Think of this metaphor more like if you've got a, a, a group of soldiers and maybe the captain's up front saying, look, I've got a, a really special mission that we're going on and I don't need all of you. I just need some that are willing to give it all for this mission. Who's with me? And some just, you look down the line, you're like, I'm in, right? So that's another way you use the, the, the idea of the, the line in the sand, like, yeah, I'm in. And I realize there's consequences, there's implications, and I accept every one of those implications. I accept every amount of risk. And I'm committing. I'm in. No turning back. Now, why do I go on to explain this metaphor, the, the, the line in the sand? It's because, guys, historically, when Christians repeated the lines of the Apostles' Creed, they were actually drawing a line in the sand. Many times at the consequence of their own lives. They were saying... Yeah, I'm in, and I realize this could be perilous, but I can't unbelieve what I now believe to be true. Come what may, I'm in, right? Now, we don't live in a world where that level of consequence comes to most of us. But I am saying this, guys. I don't want you to minimize how important this creed is and what you're saying you believe about this creed. Because in saying the stuff that we're going to talk about today about Jesus Christ... If you really believe what you're going to repeat back in the creed, you are signing on to a mission. You are signing on to a belief system that is so countercultural, that, that is so kind of um, against the flow, you know, of our world and, and the thinking, the worldview of many around us, that you will do two things. You, you will immediately kind of unite yourself with some of the most incredible friendships some of the most incredible bonds that you will ever have, and simultaneously, if you really believe what we're going to look at today, you will alienate yourself from some circles of people that it will be super hurtful to you, incredibly hurtful. Friends, family. There's a line in the sand that we're being called to when we say what we say about Jesus Christ, and it's really, honestly, guys, it's the most consequential belief that you can have. So I don't want us to take it lightly as, as, we, as we look at the scriptures and what we mean by what we say we believe in the Apostles' Creed. So let's throw the Apostles' Creed up there. Let's, let's read this out loud together, okay? Now again, if you're not comfortable because you're not a believer, these aren't the confessions of truth, it's okay. There's no shame in just sitting there and allowing the rest of us to say and. And so I'm asking, if you really believe this, then let's say, this, this is what I believe, and let's do that from, from the depths of our hearts. Let's do this together. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, the maker.
All right, that is the Apostles' Creed. I hope you've been taking advantage of the card, you know, and even try to flip it over. In our connection group, we even did that, you know, using the first letter to see who could make it through. I I hope you're using that to be able to keep in step with what we say we believe. So today, here's what we're going to be doing. We're going to be looking at that phrase, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. So there are three things about Jesus in this part of the creed that are that line in the sand for us, where we're going to draw the line on. So again, again what, what we mean by that is no compromise, no way to budge, no, no wiggle room on these three things that we're going to say we confess. And no matter the cost, no going back, here's what we believe. Let, let's look at those three phrases. These three titles, maybe descriptions of Jesus that are laid out for us in, in quick form here in the creed, are maybe the three most important things you can believe about Jesus, okay? Now, we're going to spend three weeks, because a big chunk of the Apostles' Creed is about Jesus, so we're going to spend three weeks on Jesus. But here, in rapid form, we get these three phrases about Jesus, and we're going to see how from the very beginning, from Luke chapter 1, from the moment he comes to us uh, in Bethlehem, these are the three things that we are pointed to about Jesus. It is unmistakable, which is why the creed brings it down to that. These are the most unmistakable, unmissable, unbudgeable aspects of who Jesus is. So uh, let's look at Luke chapter 1 and, and let's see why the creed grabs these phrases as the things that we believe as Christians about Jesus. Okay, Luke chapter 1 verse 26, it says, in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to a town in Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin engaged to a man named Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel came to her and said, Greetings, favored woman. The Lord is with you. But she was deeply troubled by this statement, wondering what kind of greeting this could be. Then the angel told her, Do not be afraid, Mary. For you have found favor with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. Okay, we're going to get back to Luke chapter 1 in a moment. But just this opening moment uh, with Mary tells us a lot. So number one, that his name is going to be Jesus. That is a really important name. Now that's just his first name. That's his given name. In fact, of all these other names that are going to go on, most of those are titles. This is actually his only name that we're given here, Jesus. And, and it's important because uh, it, it comes from the Old Testament name Joshua, which means God saves, okay? Not only is Mary told this, if you, if you read the Matthew account, Joseph is also told, hey, you're going to be there while Mary brings the son to the world, and you have to call him Jesus. Why? Because he will save his people from their sins, right? So this idea of a savior, he saves from Joshua now up to the Greek and Roman times. It's, it's kind of been changed over to Jesus. And he was not the only Jesus running around. That was actually a, a fairly common name, maybe like John or something today, Peter today, something like that. Because um, it, it was after a, a famous guy from the Old Testament, right? But it was really important, God says, that you name him Jesus, because it's going to have significance. He is the Savior. God saves. He's the Deliverer, okay? But when you pair Jesus with 
Christ, now Christ is not his last name, right? It's not like we do where, you know, Jeff Dodd's a family name and a given name. He's got his given name, Jesus. And this is one of the first titles that we're going to look at, the Christ. This is, uh, some of your translations maybe even have, instead of Christ, Messiah. Because Christ, Messiah, it's, it's the appointed one. Sometimes the anointed one. This is the one that we've been waiting for and waiting for and waiting for. This is the appointed one to come. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. So for that, I want us to go all the way back to the opening pages of our Bible. Go back to Genesis 1, or Genesis chapter 3 with me. So in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, the first part of the creed comes to us. Here's the maker of all things, the Almighty, coming to us. But in chapter 3, when you get to Genesis 3... Um, we've got that awful moment of the fall of man, where even using Mark's language from, from last week, God has given mankind this whole incredible garden, and he just put a fence around one tree, just said, no, don't, just, just one tree. Of all the things, you know, well, they make a beeline for the one forbidden tree with the one forbidden fruit, and that's where they take, they eat, and so we have the fall of, of mankind into sin and rebellion. So when we get into chapter 3, the consequences of this sin, this rebellion, are coming out. And as the Lord looks at this cunning serpent who's brought all this into the world, uh, drop down with me to verse uh, 15. He says this to the serpent. I will put hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Now, I want you to notice this is really striking in the Hebrew because you go from this plural hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. And so you go from this plural, like this progeny, these descendants, to suddenly this radical shift to he will strike your head and you will strike his singular heel. So we go from this enemy, you know, camps, descendants, to all of a sudden a focus on one that will come and crush the serpent. There will be one that will come and strike the serpent. Now, on, on the way up, he's going to strike the heel. He's going to take a nip. He's going to take his first swing. He's going to get one bit of damage on, on the deliverer, but that deliverer is going to come and crush. And as the heel comes down to crush the head, maybe he's going to take a bite, but man, ultimately, War over, game over, right? The, the enemy will be crushed. That is the first moment where we get that hope that there's a deliverer, an appointed one, a Messiah, a, an enemy crusher that's going to be coming our way. And that's going to come from a woman. From a woman, and now we know the name of that woman, Mary. This peasant girl, Mary, is going to be the one to bring uh, a child in, right? Even when you get to the book of Isaiah, a child will be born to us. A son will be given to us. Like, how, how is this? So all that's coming, that's flowing out of Genesis 3.15, this promise in the most dire moment, sin, you know, the fall of mankind in that moment, this, this breath of hope. But I'm going to come one, I'm going to bring one, an appointed one that's going to crush the enemy and bring ultimate victory. So if you're, if you're back in, in Luke, keep your finger there, that's going to be our main text. But go to the end of Luke, because I want you to see how in Luke 24, Jesus, when we get to Luke chapter 24, now he's accomplished everything. He's, he's gone through the cross, the resurrection, everything. And, and at the end of Luke 24, he says something really significant to his followers before he ascends back to the Father. And in Luke 24, verse 44, here's what he says. 
he told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Understand what he's saying here. Everything in the Old Testament has been pointing to me. That Genesis 3.15, a little promise about a coming anointed one, that's me. Everything that Moses wrote, everything the prophets wrote, everything you're seeing in the Psalms has got to be fulfilled, and it has been. It's me. So verse 45. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. It all begins to unfold. It's all like, oh, it all starts making sense now. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah, right? The Christ. Same word, Christos. This, the Christ will suffer and rise from the dead the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. You got a front row seat. Moses would have loved to have seen this day. Abraham would have loved to have seen this day. All these, but you, you are witnesses of that very climactic moment where the appointed one, the Messiah, the Christ has finally come. So here's what I'm saying. By confessing this phrase that I believe in Jesus Christ, by confessing that you are actually confessing the entire redemptive plan of God. Like Genesis to Revelation. The whole plan coming together in Jesus. That's what you're confessing when you say, I believe in Jesus Christ, the Messiah. A human named Jesus is the Christ. Okay? So why is this a line in the sand? Because guys, in saying, I believe in Jesus the Christ... You are rejecting the idea that Jesus is just one of many paths to God. You're not just saying, I, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. By doing that, there's an exclusivity to that. What you're saying is, God appointed Jesus Christ. One plan. One way, right? Where Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The article in front of those is really important. Not... A way, right? Not a journey toward life. No, no, no. I am the way. I, th this is the appointed pathway toward God. Now, listen, um, Christians, when we say that, that we have the exclusive pathway toward God because of Jesus, we don't say that out of arrogance. We, we don't say that in some kind of elitism. Here's the reality of it, guys. Like, if you, if you were in a burning building, right, and there was a group of you in this burning building, and there was one dude in that group that actually knew everything about that building and knew the one way out to safety, it would be the height of evil for him to be like, hey, you guys, go your own way. Maybe you'll find your way out. I'm heading this way. Right? Who would do that? If you actually knew the one way that was actually going to be a path of safety for everything, what you would do is say, no, follow me. Trust me. I know the one way out. You would be compelling people to follow. That's more what we're saying when we talk about Jesus being the way, the truth, and the life. Is what we're saying is, no, actually, I, I know the one way, and I'm begging you, come along. It's open to anybody who will come along, right? I'm not being elitist or exclusive just for the sake of having some kind of arrogance. No, no, no. I'm saying... This is the way. This is the path. God has given us a path. God has brought deliverance to us. Oh, let's follow it. Let's believe him, right? So that's what we mean when we say, I believe in 
Jesus Christ. Let's look at that second phrase and go back to Luke chapter 1 to see it. It's his only son. I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that Jesus is his only son. Back in Luke 1, look at verse 34 and 35 with me. Mary asked the angel, how can this be since I've not had sexual relations with a man? Let me just hit pause there for a second too because lest we think that this is actually some kind of materialistic thing like Mary's going to have a baby like everybody has ba- you know, all women have babies no 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 this is going to be supernatural twice she's called a virgin now just so we understand what virgin means I've not had sexual relations with anyone okay so this is a miracle this is front to last a complete miracle there's no naturalistic way to explain this this is going to be a miracle from God and the angel replied to her the Holy Spirit will come upon you The power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Guys, this gets at the central teaching of Christianity. We are now like at the aorta, like the life-giving part of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what Christianity teaches. All, All other religions, all other religions compel people to make their way toward God. All other religions are saying, look, you've got to do something to get right with God. So that might be do a bunch of good works. That might be try to atone for your bad works. So it might either be do good or do penance, work harder, right? But it's up to you. You got to, man, bummer for you. There's a gap between you and whatever that God is, whatever you name him or her you got to make your way that way through some kind of achievement on your own. What I'm saying is when we say what we say we believe in the creed, we're saying something radically different than every other religion. We're saying God made his way to us. We didn't climb our way to God. We didn't figure this out and we didn't achieve anything. God made his way to us. And, and listen, when God made his way down to us, when he bridged that gulf, that gap to us, The father didn't pad that journey for his son, okay? The son is born into abject poverty. The son comes to us through an unwed pregnant mother. The son comes to us in infancy. Can you imagine the vulnerability of being an infant child in the first century in poverty, born into a stable, right? to, To think of God choosing that, like, If it were my son that I was going to send in this, right, I would want to kind of pad it, kind of protect him, kind of insulate him from any kind of harm, right? No, no, no. When Jesus comes to us, he he, he comes even in, in homelessness for much of his adult life. In dependence on other people. Dependence on other people. Yes, having to depend on others for food, for clothing, in infancy, for everything, for life. Even in obscurity. Guys, let this settle on you. God became human. This is crazy. When you confess this stuff, I hope you kind of just hit pause long enough for the weight of this to land in your soul. God, the maker, the almighty, became human. There's a passage in Colossians I'll have on the screen for you that 
there's lots of passages on this, but Colossians 1, I think, does this amazing job because er earlier in Colossians 1, he's talked about, you know, he has rescued us from the domain of darkness, transferred us into the kingdom of the son that he loves. There's, that, there's how we get redemption, the forgiveness of sins, right? The son that he loves. Now, here's how he describes it in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. Everything was created by him in heaven and earth, the visible and the invisible, whether thrones, dominions, rulers, authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, like in front of all things, and by him all things hold together. Verse 19. This is amazing, guys. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. Whether this is the first time you've considered this stuff or the thousandth time that you've considered this stuff, let this land in your souls, what we're believing to be true. God became flesh. God took on this level of vulnerable flesh to dwell among us. So why is this a line in the sand? Because again, guys, when you say this stuff, you are rejecting the idea that Jesus is just some kind of moral teacher. That, that Jesus is just some kind of religious figure who has, has come to drop some prophetic truths into our world. And then, no, no, no. Guys, we're saying something far more than that. <laughs> that God himself has become man. He is the son of God. Okay, the last phrase. Let's go back to Luke chapter 1 again. And I've done these a little bit of a, out of order, so I'm going to jump back up to verse 32 now because the, the last phrase is our Lord, his only son, and then our Lord. Look at verse 32. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Look at the lordship kingship language in those couple of verses right the most high a throne reigning a kingdom that will have no end guys jesus is certainly the appointed one he is certainly the christ that will suffer he will die he will rise again jesus is certainly the son of god he is certainly god incarnate god become flesh he is certainly that but guys he is also certainly the king of the universe. Jesus is the king who will one day return to earth to rule and to reign forever and ever and ever. Now, I, I started earlier on by having you go to the opening book of the Bible. I want to show you the expanse of this by now having you flip clear to the other end. Will you go with me to Revelation chapter 19? And I'll have these on the screen as well, but, but Revelation 19. So now we're going to the bookend on the other side of this just to show you how comprehensive this message is in the whole Bible when we confess this. Up. Revelation 19 verse 11 is talking about that day, that one day in the future where God, Jesus, will come back to rule and to reign. Revelation 19 verse 11. Then I saw heaven opened and there was a white horse. Its writer is called Faithful and True, and with justice he judges and makes war. Okay, so this is a very different scene than Bethlehem. 
a very different scene than infancy. This is the high king coming back, and it's in language of war. His eyes are like a fiery flame. Many crowns were on his head. He had a name written that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure white linen. By the way, the reason for that is because they don't take part in the battle at all. It's done. He does it all. They stay white as snow because he does it all. This king is coming. Verse 15, a sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule with an iron rod. He will also trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God, the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. So that is what we believe about Jesus that yes, he came to us as the appointed one, as the Christ. Yes, he came to us. He's the son of God, came incarnate. And we believe that he is the Lord of lords, the king of kings. And he will one day come and set up his rule and his kingdom. Now, that is either the most incredible good news. Or it should be the most terrifying news that you have ever heard in your life. Because it all depends on which side you're on right? When that king comes back to, to establish his rule and reign, that's either great if you're on his side, or it's terrifying if you are on the enemy's side, right? That's the way war works. That's the way it's going to be at the end of all things, right? So the really important question is, whose side are you on? And you guys, I, I have to say this, again, not out of arrogance, out of just pleading with you, there is no middle ground, there is no Switzerland, okay? You know, Switzerland has been historically kind of neutral territory in any kind of uh, world war or whatever. There is no Switzerland. You can't be neutral. When Jesus comes back, you will either find that the most glorious day of deliverance or the most terrifying day of your defeat. You are on one side or, or, or the other. If you are willing to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, I believe that Jesus is the Son of God. I believe that Jesus is the Lord. Then, man, yes, we worship the King of Kings. You say, no, I actually refuse to believe that. Then that day becomes your greatest horror, the most terrifying moment when you realize you were wrong, when he comes back to claim the title King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So why a line in the sand? Well, there's a, a familiar passage from C.S. Lewis, and he just, nobody says it better than this. So I, I, I want you to, to see what he says. C.S. Lewis says, you must make your choice, okay? You must make your choice. It's the line in the sand. That's what I've been trying to say. It's the line in the sand. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. Look, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit on him, you can kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. 
he did not intend to. Right? You can't recreate Jesus after your own fashion. Oh, I reject all this. I just think he was a great teacher. He's like, oh, actually, that's not one of the choices on the table. <laughs> right? J Jesus actually didn't leave that option open for you to just recreate him after something of, of your own desire, to minimize him, reduce him to something else. No, no, no. He's saying, here's who I am. Do you believe me? Guys, I just want us to take a moment to meditate on the crazy, just spectacular truths that we are confessing in these few simple phrases. The God of the universe chose to wrap his redemptive story, his saving story, through a marginalized peasant girl living in a backwater town in Galilee. <laughs> And that's supposed to tell us something. God sees you. You're not so marginal. You're not so on the fringes that he doesn't see you. I'm telling you, the God of the universe sees you and has come for you. Isn't that spectacular? Think about that. I, I, I want to show you an image of, of an Iowa town that's dear to me. Uh, <laughs> isn't that beautiful? That's beautiful downtown Orchard, Iowa, okay? That's, seriously, that's Orchard, Iowa. That's where my mom and dad come from. Okay, now I grew up in the way more progressive town of Osage, but just down the road. But this, this is Orchard, Iowa. Guys, Nazareth, it's like Orchard. Nazareth in the first century where Jesus' hometown, it's like 400 people, okay? Now, even on a good day, there aren't 400 people in Orchard. <laughs> but, but what I'm saying is, when, when you think of how Jesus, don't, don't think of him coming in glory and splendor. Think of him coming and getting born in something like that. Okay? Guys, Nazareth was like half the size of Shuiville. Been to Shuiville? How many, anybody here from Shuiville? Okay, yeah, half. Half the size of, if, if the rest of us have maybe been through Shoeyville. That's what I'm saying. The God of the universe chose to be born in Orchard, Iowa. What? Yet Jesus was simultaneously the king of the universe. So here's the line in the sand. That sounds absurd, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound absurd that the king of the universe would come for you and me in that way, in saying the words of the creed, you are saying, that sounds crazy. I believe what God says. Right? I believe it so much that I believe he actually did that for me. I believe that so much that I'm willing to stake my life on it. I believe that so much that I'm willing to cross that line and say, I'm in. And I know that's got consequences. I know in saying I believe that, that there's going to be people that just mock me and think I'm nuts. Yep, I know. I'm stepping across that line because I'm saying my only hope in this world, my only hope for any kind of connection with God is through that story of Jesus Christ, and I believe it. I'm in. I'm in. The question is, do you believe that? Like, do you believe that? 
Jesus isn't asking you just to, to, to repeat empty words. He's saying, do you believe? Because I want to give you life. I, I, I want to give you hope. I want to change your life and your destiny. Will you believe? And oh, what I'm hoping is all of us will say, I believe. I believe. Will you stand with me as we pray? Jesus, what a story you bring to us. What an unbelievable story you bring to us. And yet, you ask us to believe. And I'm saying, I believe in God. I believe in a Father Almighty. I believe there's a maker of heaven and earth. And in this moment, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord. And I believe that he was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. Help me in those times of, of confusion. Help me in those times where this sounds crazy. Help me, help me in those times where, where I start buckling because pe people think I'm nuts for believing this kind of thing. Lord, I believe. I believe. Will you fill us with worship? Will you fill us with wonder that we could be the kind of people that you, as you've said in the scripture, open our minds to understand this is the greatest story on the planet. O open our minds, open our eyes to see this glorious, glorious truth. Help us, Jesus, to never reduce who you are Think less of who you are, but proclaim, even through tears, you are the Christ. You are the Son of God. You are my Lord. I bow. I give you my allegiance. You're my Savior. And that's why we pray in your name.